Judge Brockus is either profoundly ignorant or corruptly wicked, he roared. We love the government and the Constitution, but we do not love the damned rascals that administer the government. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be discussing Chapter 10 of Saints, Volume 2, Truth and Righteousness. And today we're lucky to have with us Tyson Thorpe, a reference coordinator with the Church History Library in downtown Salt Lake City. Welcome, Tyson. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tyson, tell us a little bit about you and what your job is so our listeners can know and get to meet you. So I'm a librarian at the the Church History Library, but my specific focus is on doing training and working to help make the, the experience for our visitors that come in to do research or just come in to see what the library is about to give them a good experience in the service they're provided, but then also the experience they have in exploring and learning about or in researching in church history. And for our listeners that don't know, we may have said this previously, but if you're looking to do research about church history, you can come down to the church history library. It's a public building. You can come inside. Tyson will be there at the desk. He's so nice. He'll tell you how to use the church history catalog. Mm -hmm. You can have materials brought right into the reading room and see the physical artifacts. It's super cool. It's like the Smithsonian for church history. Yeah, and we even have a permanent exhibit that has a lot of original documents from the early church history. So some of these things I've read about in volume one and we'll be reading about in volume two, highlighting some of those artifacts. And at the same time, we're also digitizing and putting a lot online so people can access many materials from home without having to come downtown. Even though they're welcome to, we love them coming in, but we do provide that opportunity for people as well, as well as the Ask Us um, little button throughout the website so yeah, people can I was, reach out to us I was going to make sure we said that. So at history.churchofjesuschrist.org, as you look at the Church History Library section, you'll see this little Ask Us button. And you can ask questions about church history, and they will come to Tyson and his team. Occasionally, one of the other things that I have the opportunity to do is work with the Joseph Smith Papers team, and occasionally Tyson will send me a question and say, hey, we have a patron that's interested in when this volume is coming out or something like that. And they do an awesome job at responding to questions. There are a lot of wonderful experts that I hope that you're all excited to meet on the Saints podcast that work in church history and others that Tyson and his team work with to get answers back to you. So. Mm-hmm. It's a cool service that the Church History Library provides. Well, Tyson, we're really glad that you could join us today. And as we start this chapter, we're in Hawaii. (laughs) So tell us what's going on in Hawaii right now. Well, in the chapter, you have George Q. Cannon, who, with that group of early missionaries to the islands, are there to share the gospel. And George has gone kind of further into Maui in order to share the gospel with some of the native Hawaiians and to, yeah, to do that, to share the gospel with the natives. (laughs) I love this experience. When George is, he's going out, he's decided to teach the native Hawaiian people and Mm -hmm. he falls in the river and like, I totally did that on my mission. I went (laughs) to the Philippines and I like literally fell into a rice paddy and was just like covered with mud. (laughs) And I felt, I was like, I can totally feel George here. Mm. He's like, I'm going back. Like, this is awful. Yeah. And then the spirit tells him, try one more time. 
and he turns around, and it was like reading the Book of Mormon to me. It's like Alma and Amulek. George is Alma, of course, and he meets Amulek. Who is his Amulek? The man's name is Jonathan Napella. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his name in Hawaiian, but he was a, a judge there on the island, has, was very well educated, and obviously thought there was something different about George Cannon and the message that he shared, and studied the gospel, learned from George Cannon, learned from the missionaries, and ended up joining the church a year later after this experience that he has in this chapter of meeting George Cannon the first time, and then becomes this wonderful missionary for decades there in Hawaii, being very influential on inspiring many other members through some trying times that they had, and then the trying times of himself where his wife contracted leprosy, and then he went with her to the leper colony there in Hawaii, and eventually himself had leprosy, but you know remained faithful and to the, the church and the teachings and remained faithful to his testimony of Jesus Christ and worked throughout his life to not only live the gospel, but to live it well. For our listeners who are just sort of keeping track along with us and maybe you're just reading chapter 10 for the first time, I promise you that Jonathan Napella is going to be one of your favorite people in Saints. He is amazing. As you mentioned, these things that he does coming up in the book, I mean, it's just incredible. In fact, if you go to BYU Hawaii today, if, if you were lucky enough to visit over there, there's a wonderful statue of Jonathan Napella and George Cannon, and they're holding up the Book of Mormon translated into Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. He's an amazing man and someone we need to remember in our church, as well as his wife, Kitty. They are incredible people, and I just think it's awesome that we get to learn more about them. So just stay tuned because they're amazing people. Yeah, sorry and, if I offered any spoilers there. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> well, and it's just amazing that George Cannon had, he knew that there were people ready for the gospel, but he almost didn't even go. He felt embarrassed to go. Yeah. He felt embarrassed as, as a missionary, and it's just incredible that we get such incredible strength in the church in Hawaii through then Jonathan Napella. Yeah. Well, and I think going back to your comparison to Alma and Amulek, I think Am Alma had similar situations, getting discouraged, thinking, I'm giving up, turning around, told to go back. First person he meets is Amulek, who becomes that second witness that I think really helped people there in the city become converted because they knew this man. They knew Amulek and who he was and what he stood for. And I think it's a similar situation with Absolutely. Um, Jonathan Napella is he was this native Hawaiian and this educated man that uh, many people knew. He was a judge there on the island and so was able to offer that same sort of second witness to the gospel and the teachings of Christ. Let's go back now stateside. We have an interesting situation where when the saints first arrived in the valley, it was Mexico. Hmm. This was uh, Mexican territory. In short order, all of a sudden, now it's U.S. territory. And it becomes really clear very early on that it's going to be better to have self-government than a government imposed. There is a territorial government appointed. Mm -hmm. And this just, oh man, this is hard. Tell us about this guy that's assigned to come out. He's a judge. I'm pronouncing his name as Brockus. That's how I've always pronounced it. Okay, so Judge Brockus arrives on the scene and, and he wants to speak in the tabernacle. How does that go? Well, not extremely well. If you, you look into the history of many territorial governments at the time, these appointees sent from the East 
were rarely liked and rarely did a great job in the view of the people in the areas. So Brigham Young, though, he was appointed as the governor. He was made the governor. So Mm -hmm. Brigham Young is in that position at this time. And there are some other members of the church who are in other positions. positions, And then there are appointments of people coming from the East. And we don't know what their perspective of the saints is. We don't know what their motivations are for doing that. And so I just think that would be really awkward and hard to navigate. Well, especially when you have these saints that are kind of have a difficult relationship with government officials after a lot of experiences in the eastern United States and in New York and Ohio and Illinois, Missouri. But Brockus didn't really help the situation with his speaking down to the saints, addressing well polygamy, which was not officially announced yeah. publicly. So that's by the that's church. another part of this story that seems, I'm sure, to have complicated everything. Brockus has certainly heard the rumors. Mm-hmm. He arrives here, and we learn in Saints that at parties, this is a quote directly from the book, at parties and other social gatherings, the officers met the wives of Brigham Young and Heber Kimball who made no effort to conceal their relationship to their husbands. Yeah. So even though they weren't like formally on the record as were practicing plural marriage, it was super clear when he arrives. To him, yeah. They're practicing plural marriage. So then Judge Brockus asks for an opportunity to speak to the saints. And let's listen to a quote here at the end of his speech. You must become virtuous and teach your daughters to become virtuous, he said. So he's he's pretty much directly calling out polygamy and encouraging the women to leave what he, I think, viewed as these men imposing this upon the women there, encouraging them to to give this up and return to what many Americans viewed as the, the right way of living. I'm sure it was shocking to him as it had been to the early saints, that when they tried to learn, or they had learned about it. And this language doesn't go over well on the stand. Let's listen to what Brigham Young said. He paces back and forth, and then he says, Judge Brockus is either profoundly ignorant or corruptly wicked, he roared. We love the government and the Constitution, but we do not love the damned rascals that administer the government. So how did that go over (laughs) with... Brockus and others. Well, it seemed like the saints very much resonated with Brigham Young's comments, but Brockus and the other officials, that kind of became the basis of many of their reports back east. So this fiery speech, then some of the celebrations from the 24th of July, and then Brigham Young's words here, and the, the situation with polygamy, all of that combined and was somewhat of a, a, a scathing report back east too government officials there of what was going on. And even at this early time, some began calling for military intervention in Utah and a drastic change out here. And even though Brigham tries to sort of like make it up later to try to make amends, and I think he must have realized he probably went too far on the stand, Brockus is not taking any of it. And he is more than happy to write as many articles as he can and speak to whomever will hear And it just begins, as you said, this whole the Mormons are in rebellion Mm -hmm. out in the West, uh, which is just going to cause a ton of problems in the future. It's one of these moments where you wish you could go back in time and be like, this is a moment to be humble, Brigham. (laughs) It's like Sidney Rigdon in volume one when he gives this sermon in Missouri that just ends up inflaming everything. Mm -hmm. And you want to go back and just shake him and say, don't do it. 
I wish we could do that for Brigham here. There are some government officials, though, who do support the saints. We read about Thomas Kane, and so even despite all of these things, he still supports them and has befriended them. And so let's talk a little bit about Thomas Kane, and who's not a member of the church again, and his experience learning about polygamy. Well, with him, I mean, he had been a friend to the saints for a while and come to know Brigham Young and others very well. I think he was very well respected amongst the saints because he treated them with respect and he didn't belittle them for their, you know, at the time, very drastically different beliefs from the American mainstream. But it was still, I think, quite a shock to him to learn about polygamy because he seems he first learned about them in some of those reports from Brockus and others about polygamy and thought, oh, no, this can't be, this can't be true. But those that he was meeting with, John Bernheisel and Jedediah Grant, to work together to help the saints' petitions regarding statehood and just help their relations back east with the federal government. And they both kind of helped educate him that, no, this is something we've been doing for a while, longer than you've really known us, longer than than you've had this relationship with us. And it was quite the shock to him, as I imagine it was to many of the, well, as we read about in Saints Volume 1, is many of these others that were asked to live the principle, it was quite shocking for them at first as well. I think it's interesting that Thomas Kane, the way he reacts, he feels hurt and betrayed like we've talked about, but he urges the saints to do two things. He doesn't say stop plural marriage or or he doesn't say I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. He just says stop concealing plural marriage and then explain it to the public. So then that sparks Brigham Young to try and think of how to really announce this because explain to us with plural marriage how that had been introduced to the saints and how that was currently being practiced. So up to this time, it had initially been Joseph Smith in Nauvoo where he'd begun to share that with others. And it was very much in secret. And so that's led to us sometimes not knowing a lot of how it was practiced or implemented because they just didn't keep records on that as much as the the efforts of the Joseph Smith papers and those writing Saints Volume 1 dug into that. There's just not much to be found because of the secret and sacred nature that they viewed that with. But at this point, as we've discussed earlier, it was much more openly being lived in the Salt Lake Valley. I think people, the, the saints felt much more free to practice their religion as they saw fit. And so you run into this conflict with these appointees to the territorial government from the east, this very forceful encounter with polygamy and what was going on. And then I think that experience and then their reports back east and then when that's begun appearing in in the newspapers and then Thomas Kane's counsel led them to say, maybe this is something that we need to talk about more instead of it just being this, we don't really talk about it, but we know what's going on and let's actually tell people, let's explain to people. And one of the chief points with that when they finally made that announcement was They were calling a large number of new missionaries to go out throughout the world. And the leaders at the time felt that they needed to give these missionaries a way to explain polygamy because they knew that word had gotten out in the United States, likely gotten out elsewhere, and these missionaries needed to be prepared to talk about plural marriage, the reasons behind it, how it was practiced, and things like that. Yeah, and as we learn later in this chapter, Orson Pratt is going to make a public announcement 
And that announcement, along with some instruction, will be used by missionaries to help explain the belief so that those who are interested in the restoration can understand it a little bit better and hear the reasoning behind practicing this principle. So in that same conference, Brigham Young speaks to the saints in the context of plural marriage. Later that day, Brigham spoke to the saints about revelation. He noted that some of the Lord's revelations were difficult to accept when they were first revealed. He recounted his own struggle 20 years earlier to accept Joseph Smith's vision of the afterlife and the three kingdoms of glory. When that first came to me, it was so directly contrary and opposed to my education and traditions, he admitted. I didn't reject it, but I could not understand it. His faith in the revelation grew as he sought clarity from the Lord. I would think and pray, read and think, pray and reflect, he told the saints, until I knew and fully understood it for myself by the visions of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, I just think that's amazing that here we have this prophet who, from another prophet, it was really hard for him to accept this revelation. And he just did a lot of work to find out for himself that it's true. And I think that is so applicable for us today. There may be things that are contrary to our education and our thinking, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. And so I love his journey that he shares with the saints. I think that was something that was really helpful for the saints. I love some words later that he follows up with where he says, we would rather the people, however, would live so as to have revelations for themselves and then do the work we are all called to do. You know, he teaches us that we too can receive this revelation. Um, revelation will come from the leaders, but the main point is that we all have the, the Holy Ghost with us, and we can all have that opportunity to receive those revelations, whether it is a confirmation of what church leaders have shared or whether it is a revelation for ourselves, for our lives that we need. And so some great principles that he teaches us there on and regarding revelation. I thought there was a funny quote in that conference. George A. Smith, who I think is a character, he says, the missions we call for during this conference generally are not to be very long ones. Probably from three to seven years will be as long as any man will be absent from his family. <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought he was having a little fun there with the saints. I took note, and I want to see what you guys think about this, but I've often wondered, you know, what was the purpose of plural marriage? And this speech by Orson Pratt seems to be one of the earliest opportunities, in a public setting anyway, to explain why. And these are the things that I wrote down after reading the chapter. First was the Lord asked his people to practice plural marriage. So it came from Heavenly Father. It was to multiply and replenish the earth, so bring children, share the promises and blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, to bring more of Heavenly Father's spirit children to the world. I guess that's a duplicate of the one I said before. Um, the children to learn the gospel from righteous parents and grow up to help establish the kingdom of God. And I think Matt Groh, who also works in church history as a historian, I think he told me something like 20% of members of the church today have some kind of relationship in their line to families from plural some marriage. Ancestor. So yeah. it's, I mean, it's a significant amount. And certainly if you look at the leaders of the church, that has to be absolutely true. And then finally, Orson says, the Lord governed the practice with strict laws. Only the prophet held the keys of the marriage covenant. I'd heard all of those things before. It was just interesting to me that in this very first speech, 
explaining the practice that this is the justification. These are the reasons given for practicing the principle. And it really hasn't changed. Like that's the same thing. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I remember hearing and you know, learning about this in history is that these are the reasons, but I don't think I had really ever, well, I had never read Orson Pratt's speech and never really connected those with this is the, when they first announced it publicly and explained it to the people at large, those are the reasons they gave and those are the reasons that were used for decades later to explain this is why we live plural marriage. And there's a lot in this chapter and we can only cover so much and especially with these more intricate topics. So we just want to remind our listeners that they can go to history.churchofjesuschrist.org to learn more about these topics such as plural marriage and these other people and things and places that we've talked about. Let's now, speaking of missionaries, let's go to Tahiti and talk about Addison Pratt and and his wife, Louisa. These are characters that are recurring throughout Saints Volume 2. So let's talk about what they're up to at this moment in time. So with both of them, they've been in the islands um, teaching the gospel Louisa has been doing a great job. Um, her husbands have been traveling much more, much more, but she has been there having meetings with other women, other saints there to help bolster their testimonies. She's been learning the language, which she is herself admits was quite the accomplishment. I um, love that when she life. says that in the meridian of her life that mm -hmm. she learned this language. And I thought there's going to be like 10,000 senior couples <laughs> that are going to read this chapter <laughs> And, and they're going to be me. like, that is me and I can do this. Mm -hmm. So good job, Louisa. You're inspiring people to this day. Yeah. And it's just wonderful what she was able to do there amongst the saints in building their testimonies in their faith as a missionary, but maybe not in the, the traditional sense that we've seen many of these other men that have gone out or the missionaries today. The, one of the probably the hardest parts for the Pratts and other missionaries there was then having to return to the Salt Lake Valley and leave these people that they had become so close with that they had built these strong relationships with. But unfortunately, as had happened in some other parts of the world, governments were not keen on the missionaries teaching there, the Latter-day Saint missionaries, especially with the, at that time, the idea of the, the gathering to Zion, which unfortunately many of the saints in the islands were unable to do at that time. But I think for them, which was a disappointment not being able to go with these saints to gather with the rest of the church, but at the same time, we look at the history of the church in those islands, and they were the groundwork that helped the church survive and last and be strong for generations and over a century of these strong, faithful members there in Tubuai and Tahiti being the basis for the gospel when the missionaries were finally able to come back 40 years later and share that with them again. It is an amazing story. I have to tell you, in the television special that aired about saints between conference sessions, some of our listeners, and maybe you guys will remember, but Elder Cook mentioned that he went to one of these islands where Addison and Louisa Pratt served. And he was in a church meeting, I'm guessing sacrament meeting, and a young woman stood up and bore her testimony and mentioned that she was a seventh generation member of the church. And he said, I came from Pioneers, and I'm a fifth generation member of the church. She was a seventh generation member of the church. So we see their legacy continuing to this day in the Pacific of this amazing mission of the Pratts and also the people. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the missionaries. It's about the people that they taught and that are still there. Yeah. 
Um, well, and going back to earlier, like I said, the, the legacy of those like Jonathan Napella and his wife Kitty, the legacy that they left by being those stalwart saints. And I think often we think about the missionaries that went to these islands, but the wonderful thing with saints is we learn the stories of the people that were living in these islands that welcomed the missionaries, that learned from the missionaries and joined the church and became these wonderful, powerful people in the gospel and witnesses of Christ that allowed for seventh generation members to come out of the Pacific Islands when too often we think pioneers crossing the plains, coming from England, coming from New York, Ohio, and forgetting that there is just as long of a legacy there in the, the Pacific as well. And not just in the islands. I was surprised to read in the book that it said after this conference where so many missionaries were called, they set out to preach on every inhabited continent. And I just think that's so exciting and yet so neat to think about all of the missionary work that's going on around the world at this time and then the faithful members that continued that legacy. Mm-hmm. Well, Tyson, we are so grateful you could come and join us today. We invite our listeners. We've got a lot more to learn about in future episodes as the missionaries fan out across the earth. We continue the story of saints. We invite you always to visit saints.churchofjesuschrist.org where you can check out our latest topics and videos. You can always email us your feedback and questions at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you so much for listening.